thinking on Matthew 8 over the weekend, and that led us to Sunday evening's text, and thought Matthew 9 would be a good follow-up for that study. So this is only, uh, if you were here Sunday night, you know what we talked about. Uh, if you weren't, this is going to be a, a sufficient message in and of itself, and next week we'll get back to our regularly scheduled programs. How about that? So Matthew 9, Matthew 9. Now Sunday evening we looked at Matthew 8 and did a Bible study called What Jesus Did, which is a callback to that old, that old slogan, that old question that we heard a lot back in the 90s, uh, what would Jesus do? Before you do anything, before you think, uh, before you make a decision about any specific thing in life, uh, ask the question, what would Jesus do? And we don't have to wonder what would Jesus do because we know exactly what Jesus did. It's right in front of us. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John gives us detailed record of what Jesus did, the life that he lived, the person that he was, the savior he was for all of us, but also the, the model that he gave us to, to, in terms of following God and living for God and glorifying God. So we looked at a passage that especially highlights how Jesus conducted himself in ministry, how he always called on people, us included, to follow him. That simple invitation that we'll hear again tonight. Follow me. And, and he also called people to, to to, to do what he did, to mimic him, to adopt and apply his attitudes and his actions. So we observed how Jesus was always willing to follow God for that incentive alone. He wasn't following God for some extra hidden ulterior motive. He was following God for the joy and delight of knowing his Father, for being close to his Father. That was enough for him. He, didn't, he wasn't here for a crown. He wasn't here for a kingdom. He was here to serve his Father and to do what his Father had called him to do. So we saw how Jesus modeled that and put on display what it meant to know God and participate in his activity. And, and that's what took him to a greater plane, to a higher type of life, a higher walk uh, of life. And th this attitude led him to getting on a boat right before a storm. It, it allowed him to go and sleep in the bottom of the ship without concern at all uh, of what might happen to that boat. Uh, it allowed him to go into uncharted, un un reach uncomfortable territory to reach people for God. So likewise, we should follow wherever he leads, trusting that even if it takes us into the opposite of what's ideal to us, then we should simply put our faith in God and that he has a plan that we might not understand just yet, but he has a plan. So in the middle of a storm, we know that we are about to see the power of God on display. On the mission field, we're about to see God work through our lives and, and use our lives to change people and reach people. So when he says the harvest is plenty and the laborers are few, we know it's because people just aren't willing to do what Jesus did and go where Jesus went. Yet, we know we cannot escape our calling to and we cannot make excuses any longer because the harvest is plenty, the laborers are few, and we are being sent to do what Jesus did. So I thought a good way to complement that message and continue those themes is simply turn the page and look at the next chapter, which just like the last one, highlights Jesus' boldness and faithfulness. Uh, this one, though, is going to spotlight a few believers and a few disciples who stepped out in faith and made life-changing decisions, and it's going to show us that we can experience similar uh, encounters with God, experience with God, if we take that same kind of step. So this message is called What Disciples Do. So we know what Jesus did, and this chapter is going to tell us what disciples should do if we know 
Jesus. So if you want to know what people who've pushed all their chips forward for Jesus, if you want to know what it looks like to, to, to completely surrender to Jesus, completely put everything on him and trust in him, Matthew 9 is going to give us some pretty awesome examples, some that you would expect, some maybe that you wouldn't expect. This chapter is going to feature several unique episodes showing believers and followers and disciples in various situations in life. So that's why I think this chapter has something for all of us. We're going to see people advocating for those they care for. We're going to see people help uh, them find help for themselves. And we're going to see people make big decisions and big sacrifices in and of themselves. So we're going to break it down one section at a time, just like last time. Our first one is Matthew 9, 1 through 8. The scripture says, So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he led, said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which it's easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or, or say, Arise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins... Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. Now there's a lot of messages in those eight verses. We could spend a whole night or more just on those eight verses unpacking each little part of the story. But I want to focus in on, for the first part of our message, I want to focus in on verse number two. It says, Jesus saw their faith. If you've ever paid attention to that before, if you've ever saw that before, I would encourage you to highlight it, underline, star it, whatever you do to, to, to denote that in your Bible, put a bookmark next to it. He saw their faith. Now, I think a lot of times we think about faith and we think of something private, something personal, something that no one can see, no one knows but us and God what is going on in our hearts. And that's true in a lot of ways. But Jesus saw, Mark tells us there's four men that are helping this one man. Jesus saw the faith of these four men. And that tells us something. And I think we all, can, we all believe this or understand this, but this maybe is something you ever thought about before. It is undeniable that true faith, true, genuine faith is noticeable, is active, and apparent, as in it's unavoidable. It's clear and obviously on display. Now, you're all familiar with James, the brother of Jesus, who has a famous set of verses that um, I'll just read to you and, and you can hear, be reminded of the words of James. As James wrote about faith, real faith, true faith, James says this, What is a prophet, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but not ha does not have works? Can that faith save him? He says, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. He says this, do you, do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? 
So what, is the, what does this mean in connection with what we read that Jesus saw their faith? The point of this, the point of James, the point that Jesus recognizes and wants us to get out of this story is that faith works. What does it mean that, that, that we have faith and we have works? It means that faith is not a, a, a static, just emotion that is tucked away in our heart that's invisible. Faith is active. Faith works. As in when you, when you turn a light switch on, light comes on and if you, you don't see light then you're going to have a concern over the electricity something isn't working behind the scenes so when we talk about faith working or faith that is visible the point of it is faith works faith is 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 able to make a difference in our lives if we have faith it will work. If you had something, a tool, uh, something at your house that doesn't work anymore, you probably are going to either put it somewhere out of your way or you're going to get rid of it because why would you have a tool or have some sort of equipment or a television or anything else? Why would you have it if it didn't work? It, what does it mean? What, is it, what use is it? Faith works. To have faith is to be active in exercising your faith. That is the point of this whole little scenario. To have faith is to be active in exercising faith. There are certain circles of the church that exclusively talk about exercising faith with regard to personal success or personal or spiritual prowess. If you have faith, you'll be able to do this. If you have faith, you'll have these things. But, but notice here, these people exercising their faith, they're not doing it for self-glory or self-gain. The way faith is exercised and the way we exercise our faith and the way our faith is truly on display, it, it, it's not really what we do for ourselves. It's we're helping other people. We're making a difference in the kingdom of God. And how are these people making a difference? They're bringing a man to Jesus that couldn't get there on, their own, on his own. So this should really enlighten us as to what it means to put faith to work. It means we are doing things that bring people to Jesus and build up his kingdom. This is the central theme of the New Testament. Think about in 1 Corinthians 13, 14, when Paul is talking to the church about spiritual gifts and the church at Corinth is really arguing over who's more spiritual, who's more holy. I've got this gift. You've got that gift. I can speak in tongues. I can perform miracles. And, and Paul's saying, listen, y'all, that's not that impressive to God. It's great that you do those things and it's great that you're doing these things for your own glory and for your own gain, but God isn't really impressed. Rather, God is impressed by you loving people and you making a difference in people's lives. And that's why he spends a whole chapter in chapter 13 defining love and then he says in chapter 14 above all these other things that you're distracted by pursue love so that the church may be built up as opposed for seeking and pursuing self-gain and self-glory build up the body of Christ build up others reach others and do good to others so to take a few steps farther than that one slogan that we should commit to memory based on this passage and these others we've referenced is faith works. So if you have faith, it should work. And if it doesn't work, James would say that's not that good of a faith to have. If you believe in Jesus, if you're trusting in Jesus, your faith in him is going to cause you to move and do things for him. Faith in him will cause you and will work through you to be uh, an active agent in the kingdom of God. So building off of that, if faith works, then we should know also that love does. How does faith work? It takes bold steps for the sake of the kingdom of God. It gets people closer to Jesus. It gets ourselves closer to Jesus. And what does love do? Love 
does. I think you could, I, just as James said, you show me your faith without your works, I'll show you faith by my works. If someone says they love, but they have no action behind that love, then that love is just, is cheap. It's not real. Uh, but faith works and love does. Love uh, does things out of selfless desire to see God glorified and others blessed. So what does Jesus see when he watches you? That's the question we should wonder tonight. What does Jesus see? Does he see you doing things that he did? Does he see you doing things the disciples are expected to do? John 13, y'all know the story. Jesus washes the disciples' feet, and then he, he makes this point at the end of that story. He says, you've seen me wash your feet. Uh, do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher, you call me Lord, and that's, you say that well, and you do that well. If I have washed your feet, you are to also wash one another's feet. I have given you an example John 13, 15, you've heard of the golden rule, which is what the Jews live by. This is the platinum rule. I made that up, but it sounds good. This is the higher rule. This is the Christian rule. I have given you an example. You should do as I have done to you. No servant is greater than his master, nor is he greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do these things things. So, so, bringing it all together. Serving others can look a lot of different ways, but, the th but, but that's the thing. It'll always, it's always an action that someone is going to bear witness to. I'm not saying, and by no means, do we do it to be seen. Jesus says that's not, that's not good at all. But the reality is we will be seen if we do it. If we aren't seen by someone, impact, if we aren't impacting someone, if someone doesn't feel the work that we're doing, then we must not be doing anything. Does that make sense? Faith works, and these guys were working out their faith by helping someone get to Jesus. And it was obvious to everybody in the room, these four men are working out their faith. These four men are helping someone that had no chance of getting there on his own. Again, were they doing it for the show? No, they were trying to lower this man through the roof. They didn't want any attention. But Jesus says, listen, y'all, I know you're not doing this for the, self, for the glory. You're doing this for this man. But I see your faith. And that should tell us that our faith is not some silent witness. It's not some private gesture. If we have faith and our faith is working, someone is going to see and feel the impact of our faith. If we have faith, someone is going to see and impact the, 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 uh, of our active faith. And if we don't impact anyone with our faith, then according to James, according to Paul, according to Jesus, what good is that faith? It's not a rhetorical question. Their answer is there, it's no good. To put a bow on this, flip back to Matthew 7. This is when Jesus is uh, addressing you know, how can you tell a, a true believer from a false believer? How can you tell a true servant from a false servant? How can you tell someone who's a true apostle from a false apostle or a false prophet? And that's just a fancy word for disciple. Jesus says this in Matthew 7 verse 16. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, and, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. 
So what, is fruit, what does it mean to, have, to bear fruits? It means that they're the, 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 the efforts of a Christian who's living out their faith. That we are known by our fruits, as in the spiritual attributes and actions of our lives. The difference between a false apostle or a false disciple and a true disciple, a false believer and a true believer, is active, real faith. Real faith that works to really impact people's lives. Now, again, we could, we could spend so much time talking about what does Jesus mean by your sins are forgiven and then he heals the man. Jesus is just trying to show the people that, hey, by healing this man, I'm demonstrating that I have power over sin because they thought that sickness and sin were went hand in hand. So Jesus says, y'all wouldn't be too impressed if I, just, uh, if I just told the man to get up and walk. I'm showing y'all that the bigger issue is his sin and I can take care of both. But the point of this story, uh, more overarching this story, is these Four men, Mark's gospel says, four men lowered this guy through the roof of this open-air community because he couldn't get through the crowd. Can you imagine? How, have you ever, have you ever been willing to do something that wouldn't benefit you at all? I mean, you're not going to get anything out of it except for you're going to see somebody get to Jesus. Which should be the goal. Which should be worth it and, and worth everything to us, right? I, I think this should resonate with us because every one of us got to Jesus as a result of someone bringing us to Jesus. Can we all agree on that? Nobody woke up one day as a Christian. Nobody, just, nobody was born. We we don't believe that, do we? Nobody was born as a Christian. Nobody was was a Christian from inception. Or from inception, we were all sinners, right, from birth. Now, maybe you came up in an ideal world, ideal environment. It was your parents who taught you and showed you Jesus from your earliest memories. Good. I hope that was the case. That's probably not the case for most of us, for everybody, but maybe for some, that's great. Uh, many people came to Christ that way, but the odds are um, somebody led you to Jesus. It might have been your mom, your dad, your grandparents, someone in uh, your family, uh, but even believers, even people raised by believers don't don't become Christians only because of their parents or their family. Even, even people like me who grew up in that kind of environment. It's the people that are also contributing to your life. Friends, co-workers, members of your church, right? Regardless if it's because someone put their faith to work and loved you like they should, that's what got you to Jesus. And may you never forget that. May you never forget that you were led to Jesus by somebody. So how important it is that you exercise your faith in a way that others are reached. How important it is it to bring people into God's presence along with you or to, because, hey, you believe, hey, this is an effort worth putting my, my time and energy into. You know how important it is that you help others get to Jesus, that your faith is worked out in such a way that others benefit from it? You know how important that is? It's life or death. It's heaven or hell. Yes, the story goes, and the individual man has to have his own individual faith to stand up and follow Jesus. But the fire would have never been lit in him if it was not passed along by these other four men. Their faith was active. Their faith worked. And you know how we know it worked? Because it was visible. Jesus saw their faith. So let me ask you this. Uh, it's the top of the third page of your notes if you want to see it. 
how are you exercising your faith in a way that is seen and felt by other people? I just want you to think about that tonight. How are you exercising your faith? Listen, there are people and, and there are churches that teach the only thing that, that teach exercising faith. It's all about you getting more, you becoming more, you having more money or more success or more fame. If that's how, you're, if that's, if that, if that's how you've learned faith and growing your faith, if, that, if you've been taught that your faith is only about you, then, then you've been taught wrong. Because the Bible does not teach that. The Bible says that when you exercise your faith, it should directly benefit other people. That's what it means to follow Jesus because Jesus was always benefiting other people before himself. So the litmus test to are you exercising your faith is how are you exercising it in a way that is seen and felt by others. I don't mean in some self-congratulatory way, oh wow, look at me. I mean, hey, they feel it and they see it in you and they're impacted by you. If our faith is working, then the kingdom should be impacted and growing as a result. You can't make people believe. You can't make people accept Jesus. I get it. I understand. I know that. I, of all people, know that, right? But our faith should be visible. Jesus saw their faith. So I got to ask you another, one last question pertaining to this. Does Jesus see your faith? That's a big question that we should consider. From a group of people, who used their faith to help others, to it, now we turn to a single man who had to make a decision between Jesus and everything else. Verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Pretty simple, right? Jesus passes by, Matthew hears the invitation, and Matthew says, I guess I got to follow this guy. Of course, he wanted to. Luke's gospel tells us that he left everything behind and followed Jesus. I'm sure there were people who thought having someone in that line of work could really benefit the crew. I mean, hey, Jesus, this guy is very rich. Tax collectors are very rich in those days. that They were the richest of society. Can you imagine what getting a cut out of that would do for us, Jesus? I'm sure somebody asked that question. Yet the reality was that Jesus wanted Matthew to be in ministry and newsflash to anyone looking to get involved in ministry. It's not the highest paid job in the world. Uh, Not for 90% of the people in the profession, that is. So I'm sure people told Matthew, Matthew, you can't go from doing that and making that to doing this. You're crazy. Now, people make a big deal about Matthew having to quit his job because it was some shady, you know, the tax collecting in those days was kind of corrupt, and it was. Uh, but, but this is the same thing as Jesus telling Peter to leave the fishing business. This is the same thing of Jesus telling Luke to leave the, the physician business. So he's not picking on Matthew because Matthew had a bad job. He told Peter to leave the, the boat behind, didn't he? He told, we don't read the story, but we assume Luke was a doctor, but he wasn't a doctor once he started following, uh, joining Paul's missionary team, right? So this isn't just Matthew getting picked on because he's a tax collector. Jesus told plenty of people to leave their jobs and follow him and join ministry. The point isn't that Jesus only called Matthew to leave behind his profession. The point is that he called Matthew to do something different, something that Matthew didn't do on his own or wasn't going to do on his own. It's amazingly gracious that God would call someone who wasn't a corrupt line of work, but that's really not the message here. The message is that Matthew was willing to leave that business for Jesus. 
Think about this. Matthew was willing to leave what he was used to, what he was good at, what he was comfortable with, what he was successful in, to do what disciples do. And what do disciples do? They follow Jesus and they build up the kingdom of God. Now, let me just state the obvious. Not everyone is called into full-time ministry. Matthew was, but you might not be. But everyone is called into some kind of ministry. Does that make sense? Not everyone is called to leave their job and become a full-time professional minister or to follow Jesus in this sort of ministry. Not everyone's called to do that, but everybody is called into some kind of ministry. The reality is that if you're going to follow Jesus in any capacity, serve him full-time as a minister or serve him in, in, in you know, some extracurricular way, it's going to cost you opportunities that you would otherwise have in the world. Now listen, if you're in ministry full-time, let me tell you, it's not a 40-hour-a-week, five-day-a-week job. It's a 24-7 lifestyle. If you try to do this and just clock in and clock out, then if you get up and talk, to people in, fr talk in front of people on a Sunday, you're going to be out to lunch. Some people might get by with it, but that's not how it works for me. This job, this calling requires you to put everything in that you can, to put all of your chips forward. But if God calls you into some other line of work and he leads you down that path and hey, that's his will for you, but that also means he expects you to use that platform for his glory. Regarding, regarding your time, not working, just enjoying life, living your life, all that time is meant to be open to whatever ministry God has called you into. Because again, you might not be called into full-time ministry, but you are called into some kind of ministry. I don't know what he's asking you to do. I just know that you've got to be ready and willing to do whatever he asks of you. When the call comes, when the door opens, it's on you to follow his lead and leave anything else behind that you've got to that might keep you from being all in. So, so here's what I think is a healthy disposition for us to consider. And I would strongly suggest you adopting this frame of mind for every single day. It's on the uh, third, page, third page of your notes, bottom of the page. This is a simple little prayer that I think is based, on, based in Scripture. For us to be willing to follow Jesus like Matthew was willing to follow Jesus. And I don't know what it means for your capacity. It might mean full-time ministry for you. It might mean leave this country and go to some un, un, un third world country. I don't know what God is calling you to do. I just know that God is calling you to do something. It may be being a pastor. It could be a part-time volunteer somewhere. It could be a teacher. It could be some sort of servant in the church. It could be some missionary around the world. It could be just doing something for your neighbor. I don't know, but I know it's something. It could change every day. It could be different. It could be multiple things every single day. But you know what that requires of us? It requires of us being ready. Matthew heard the call, and he got up and he followed. His desk was full. Listen, if, you, if you've ever been to an accountant's office, they got a lot on their desk. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy going into an accountant's office. Have you been into one lately? It's, I mean, our accountant, is, you go in his office, it's just like, wow. I mean, he's got, there's, he can't see his desk. Literally, he can't see his desk. Papers everywhere, right? They got a lot going on. And Matthew was willing to just clean his desk. And again, I know that's extreme and radical, and hey, that's not for you. I don't know, what's for, I don't know what God's calling you to do. I just know that we've got to be open and willing to do what he asks us to do. So here's a, little, a simple little prayer I think we should all consider praying. God, give us eyes to recognize when you pass by. What's the verse start out with? Jesus passed on from there. And he saw a man named Matthew. So what happened? Jesus walked by, 
Matthew's booth. Now, he was an, it was kind of an, an open-air, outdoor situation here. God, give us eyes to recognize when you pass by. Because if we aren't recognizing God and looking for God, then we don't even get farther than this first point, do we? God, give us eyes to recognize when you pass by. Give us ears to hear what you command me to do. Listen, Matthew saw Jesus and then he heard Jesus. But a lot of us, we aren't open to seeing him and we aren't open to listening to him, are we? You ever been so tuned out when somebody, they walk, they come, to, they're, they're in the room with you and you know they're there, but they're talking to you and you, and, and you say that dreaded response, huh? Because you weren't listening, right? I mean, it's really, right? people can be talking right to you, right? It happens every Sunday and Wednesday, right, doesn't it? People can be talking right to you and you just, you know, you tune out for just a minute. And I, have, I do this all the time. You tune out for just a minute. And they're talking, you're hearing every word, but you're not processing it. So ears to hear. Give us eye. Remember, what does Jesus always end his sermons or start his sermons with? He that has ears to hear. Not that they weren't listening, but are they hearing him? Are they processing him? So God, give us eyes to recognize when you pass by. Give us ears to hear what you command us to do. And this is big. Give us feet that are swift to go wherever you send, wherever you say go. Because if you're going to have the eyes and you're going to have the ears, but you've got to have the feet that are willing to go. Because what did Matthew do? He saw, he heard, but what, did it, what was the crucial point? He got up. So God gave us eyes to recognize, ears to hear, feet that are swift. And again, this is scriptural. Matthew 6.33 says, seek the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. So what, how, how, do you, how, how are you going to enter the kingdom? You've got to be open to it first. See it first, right? What does Romans 12 tell us? Offer your body a willing sacrifice. So if you're going to be willing, you've got to be looking, you've got to be listening, and ready. Ready to go, ready to walk. So I think that's a, a neat little prayer that maybe can help you be ready and willing. One last section that it, it may feel, feel like it's a good place to stop there, but I want to talk about the asterisk that we've got to deal with in our everyday life. Matthew 9, verse 18. The asterisk of facing the unexpected and facing an opportunity to walk away. While he spoke those things to them, he, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so, he, so did his disciples. And suddenly a woman who, uh, who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. When Jesus came to the ruler's house, he saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing. He said to them, make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her hand, took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went out into all the land. The reason why I think this is a good uh, additional story to read on the back of someone following Jesus, on the back of people exercising their faith, is here is a story of a man and a woman both turning to Jesus in the middle of a crisis. We have a story interrupted by another story, right? Man says, hey, can, can you come help? And then a woman shows up on the way. This message couldn't be clear within the context of discipleship. Our commitment to following Jesus, this is what I think the message here is. Our commitment to following Jesus 
is only as strong as our resilience in the midst of our greatest trials. When we come up against things that are potentially faith-shattering, we've got to protect our faith and demonstrate our faith by clinging to Jesus. Here's a man that could have given up when his daughter died, yet he reaches out to Jesus. Here's a woman that had 12 years of unanswered prayers, but she reaches out to Jesus. So the point of it is, if you're going to be like Matthew and follow Jesus when he says, hey, follow me, if you're going to be like those men and you're going to exercise your faith and impact people's lives for the kingdom of God, for the glory of God, for their good, you're going to have to be willing and ready. When you have days like Jairus had, Mark and Luke tells us this guy's name was Jairus. When you have days like Jairus, when you have seasons of your life like the woman with the 12-year issue of blood, you're going to have to be willing to trust in Jesus and cling to Jesus even when you might could otherwise give up. Because your commitment to following Jesus is only as strong as how resilient you are when things are going bad. So many people, when they face horrible, unexpected crises, they immediately retract from others and they walk away from their faith. This happens so much. I've seen this a hundred times in my short time in ministry. I know this is going to come across insensitive to some, but the notion to quit going to church or quit serving the church or pull back from your involvement in the church or your normal Christian activities when life gets hard, that is from nowhere but the devil himself. I tell you this because I love you, and I don't think it applies to anybody here, but you know people that this applies to. Satan takes people who are in valleys and he convinces them to serve God less. He convinces them that God has let them down to turn away from God. Listen, when you're in that valley and things are falling apart, the, the answer is cling to Jesus. Because it's in those valleys that you're vulnerable and you're fragile and you cannot trust your instincts. Same thing applies to people when they get hurt and mad and they allow things to get in between them and Jesus. Let, let me just say this as clearly as I can. Whether you're hurt or mad or disappointed or frustrated, overwhelmed, brokenhearted, are you going to let somebody or something get in between you and Jesus? Are you going to let the devil convince you that because things aren't going well, you need to walk away from your faith or pull back from your faith? That makes no sense. People tell me all the time, well, I quit, I, 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 I quit believing or I quit going or I, I serve God less or I turned away from God for a little while because things were going bad. You mean that God is so small that you let that problem cause you to go away from God? It doesn't make any sense. It feels right when we're in the moment, but... Jairus, his daughter just died, but he doesn't retract from society. He doesn't allow his depression to isolate him. He clings to Jesus. This woman, she had been turned away by every doctor. She had been given up on for 12 years. She was looked down on as some sort of cursed person. But she didn't let that get in between her and Jesus. Jairus and this woman both were determined to keep following Jesus. So if you're going to follow Jesus and you're going to decide ahead of time, you're going to have to decide ahead of time, wherever your life, whenever your life turns upside down, maybe once or a lot, you're going to have to double down on Jesus. When your life turns upside down, double down on Jesus and turn it all over to him. Jairus proclaimed his faith in the presence of his enemies. Isn't that Psalm 23? In the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint me. You set a table for me to feast at. This woman demonstrates her faith. She was not going to let the enemy keep her from Jesus. 
I don't know if your outcome is going to be just like this was for Jairus or for this woman, but I know this. If you cling to Jesus, you will be at peace with whatever he brings, and I guarantee you it'll be the best thing you could ever have asked for, the right thing, the good thing that God has for you. Just after this, Jesus heals two blind men, and then he heals another man who was demon-possessed. Verse number 29, he touches these blind men's eyes. And what does he say? According to your faith, let it be done to you. Not according to how you feel. Not according to your circumstances. Not according to what good vibes you're feeling or what good fortune you're having. According to your faith in a good God. That's what determines your involvement and your participation and your benefiting from the kingdom of God. It comes down to faith. As we've seen, faith isn't some immeasurable state of mind. Faith isn't a feeling. Faith is a willingness and a commitment and a readiness to follow and serve and cling to Jesus when you could otherwise be engaged. You could be distracted by something shiny. You could be discouraged by something awful. Faith is saying, I'm going to believe and follow Jesus and trust in Jesus and go with Jesus even when everything else tells me that's not going to work out. According to your faith. Do you ever notice that Jesus never asked the question, um, never, never asked people if they had enough faith or if their faith was big or not? Jesus always asked the question, where is your faith? Because it's, the, the emphasis isn't on the size of your faith. The emphasis on, is on the size of your God. He asked the question, where is your faith? Do you know where Jairus' faith was? It was in Jesus. Do you know where the woman with the issue of blood's faith was? It was in Jesus. Where was Matthew's faith? It was in Jesus. Where was the four men that bore the paralytic man? It was in Jesus. Where was the blind men's faith and the demon possessed? Where, 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 the, where was their faith? Their faith was in Jesus. Whether they had big faith or little faith or small faith or large faith, that's not the point. The point is they put their faith in Jesus. And when you put a little bit in Jesus, he'll take care of the rest. The point is, faith isn't about size. It's about substance. You know the story that Jesus told of the mustard seed. It's the smallest seed in all the world, yet it grows. The kingdom of heaven is like a man. It's like a mustard seed that grows into a tree that is larger uh, than anyone could ever imagine. And, and it houses all the fowls of the air. The point of that story is, and, and you can read that in Matthew 13. I think it's verse 31. Mustard seed faith is not, rec is not renowned, again, for the size, but it's for the substance. It's pure. It's not a mixed or a blended seed. It's a pure seed. And that's why Jesus compared faith in him to, 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 the, to, to the mustard seed. Jesus isn't a hope-so savior. He is a no-so savior. When you step out on Jesus, it's not like you're stepping out into some ocean that has nothing that, that can't catch you. You're stepping out on the solid rock. So the question is, what kind of faith do you have? Is it a blended faith? Is it a little bit in Jesus, a little bit in this world, a little bit in money, a little bit in this, a little bit in that? Is it kind of just a mixed bag of all the things that you think you need? Um, let me just be honest with you. That kind of faith isn't going to get you where these people got. It's not going to get you the miracles. It's not going to get you the power of God working in your life. It's not going to get you to, to leave the, your, your, your comfort zone for something amazing. It's not going to get you to help other people. It, you're not going to be these people 
And, and then maybe that's fine. If that's fine for you. But I think you want more than what you've got. I think you want to follow Jesus. And if you want to be like Jairus and the woman with the issue of blood and Matthew and the four guys, you want to be like them? Or like the blind man? It's about your faith. Where is your faith? What kind of faith do you have? And if you want to know the answers to those questions, the proof is in your discipleship. Your discipleship proves what kind of faith you have. It exposes what kind of faith you have. So look in the mirror. What kind of faith do you have? I think all of us could use a stronger, a purer faith. I think all of us, we would love to be like these we've read in this story. We've learned about faith. We've learned what faith is, what faith isn't. We've learned that faith works. And we've learned that if we have Jesus in our lives, he's going to make a difference. So I think it's wise for us to pray that simple prayer that we heard earlier and pray for God to guard our hearts from things that might try to pull us down and, and choke out the faith. And just know this, when you don't feel like you can take another step, just be glad it's not up to you how you feel. It's up to the real power of Jesus. And he just says to you and he says to me, just trust in me, just put your faith in me. I'll take care of the rest. Let me pray for you. God, give us eyes to recognize when you pass by. Give us ears to hear when you command us to do this or that. Give us feet that are swift to go wherever you send. Guard our heart from the enemy as he tries to distract us and discourage us. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on Jesus and help us to know that Jesus is big enough and he is, uh, he is enough for us. That when we don't have enough in us and we don't feel it and we don't know what's going on and we're up in arms about what might and what will happen, we can trust that Jesus is in control and that he has us in his hands. Father, I pray you might would instill in us a faith that is bold, a faith that is, uh, that is willing and ready and committed to going and doing what you've called us to do. Help us to have a faith that works and a faith that can make a difference. Not just in our life, but in somebody else's life. Lord, we'll give you praise and glory for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.